Good morning again. Um, so the ancient Japanese were famous for their sword making. They would have master uh, sword makers and they would take and they would have this elaborate process to take, you know, metal just comes to us. It's a lot easier. We have factories. They didn't. And so they would they would have this elaborate process to make the different grades of metal and then to to blend them together to the right uh, ratio to make it strong and flexible enough. But the actual process of shaping it is they would heat it up and then they would pound it, tap it out with their hammer thousands of times, fold the metal over and over. Same process, heat, hammer, fold, heat, hammer, fold thousands and thousands of hammer strikes to create this perfectly edged sword. Thousands or, or dozens of times folding that metal over so that there is, uh, I think one of the estimates said, like a million layers within it of the different types of steel and the different layers of steel to make this one instrument to put into the hands of a skilled warrior uh, to go to battle. I'm a firm believer that it is deep within the heart of every single man that we want to make an impact. That we want to make a difference, that we want to make a mark. And I don't know if it's we don't know how or, or if we just find these little bitty things like our hobbies and our sports. And we think this is going to make us great. Or we think if we cheer for a great team, it's going gonna, it's gonna to produce greatness within us. But we want to make this impact. The way to make an impact is not in one grand gesture. The way to make an impact is a thousand little hammer strokes in the life of another person to launch them out into the world in the hands of God. To be a weapon of righteousness, to be a weapon of godliness. And so I don't want to encourage you men to have one grand gesture. It's Father's Day, right? Go, go do something manly. I want, you to, I want to encourage you to give your life to a thousand little strikes up against the life of another man. A thousand little strikes up against the life of, of, of the people in your home. A thousand little strikes against all the people you come into contact with. To help be part of God's forging process. To create an instrument, to create a weapon for his righteousness in his hands to launch out into the world. I believe that is what the longing God's placed in your heart as men is. I believe that's certainly the longing that God has redeemed your heart with the gospel with. And so I want to call us into first Corinthians. We're going to go into first Corinthians 16 to, to look at this a little bit. The, the, the call to manhood is the call to make an impact. It's a call to make a difference, but it's a call to make a very specific difference. The difference of giving your life to other people, of impacting the lives of other people, of launching the lives of, of other people to be all that God designed them to be. So as we go into to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses uh, 13 and 14, um, 1 Corinthians is very much about the gospel, right? I determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. The cross of Christ is a stumbling block to some, but it's the power of God to save others. And the foundation of everything that's in First Corinthians is the gospel. And Paul lays this foundation of the gospel and he calls them to the cross. And then from there, it's about restoring relationships. And it's about restoring holiness within a church that has not got relationships right and does not have holiness right. And so there's this gospel foundation Paul is calling the church back to. 
And he begin, or in the first part of that gospel implication is you guys are fighting, you're suing each other, like you're, you're attaching yourselves to all these different teachers, like there's some status attached to I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Peter and I'm of Christ. And it's like you're trying to get status for yourselves by the teachers you follow. You, you, you sit down to the Lord's Supper and you get with your little clique and you get drunk and you have plenty of food. You look at the poor across the aisle from you. You didn't wait on them to get their food and then they didn't have any food. You didn't care. Like they're this really jacked up relational church. And Paul is saying, here's the gospel. The gospel unifies. Here's the gospel. The gospel calls you to love other people. And then they're taking their spiritual gifts and they're using their spiritual gifts to exalt themselves in the church and using their spiritual gifts to elevate them instead of the purpose. And like, here's the gospel. God's giving you gifts to love and make other, to build other people up in the faith, not to build yourself up. Right, so it's the gospel, restored relationships, the gospel, restored relationships. But then it's also the gospel and holiness. Here's the gospel. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Here's the gospel. Don't be deceived. Don't think that you can say, I got a little bit of Jesus. I live however I want. I live with sexual sin. I live with drunkenness. I live with all these other things. But me and God, we're cool. And Paul's like, no, here's the gospel. You're deceived. Because the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the good news. We're all unrighteous. But some of us were washed and we were cleansed and we were sanctified by the spirit and by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like, that's you. And so here's the gospel. Relationships being mended. Here's the gospel. Holiness is the call of your life. Transformed lives. And then he closes it out with these final instructions. These, this kind of machine gun commands to finish out the, the book. And we're going to look at just a couple of them that are mainly directed towards men and towards the leadership uh, of the church. And so there's five commands in this text uh, that he is going to go into. Four in the first verse and then one umbrella command to kind of wrap it up. And it's a call for men, a noble, high calling for men to make an impact, to make a difference, to let your life over and over again strike the lives of others, to shape them into what God would have them to be. Let's read and, and pray. So verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Let's pray. So Father, protect us from some false macho view of manhood that does not show off the beauty and the greatness of Jesus Christ. Protect us from some wimpy, watered-down version of manhood that does not display the beauty of Jesus Christ. But let us go to the cross. Let us go to the Son. Let us see the fullness of His power and the fullness of an anger that was so zealous for Your name that it would turn over tables and it would just call out people as whitewashed tombs. Let us go to the cross and the sun that would stoop down to a woman caught in adultery and raise her up and forgive her and send her out, God, as a forgiven person. God, the, the kind of graciousness that would visit a woman at a well with five husbands and one that's not and would restore her and show her, himself to her, God, and be merciful. Give us a bold biblical, Jesus-centered manhood. 
with all of its beauty, with all of its nobility, with all of its courage, and with all of its tenderness. And God, grant us to live that out. There's a world that desperately needs it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we, we look at these set of commands, like you could apply them to the Father, right? The Father is the perfect fatherhood. The fatherhood in Ephesians 3, from which all fatherhood on heaven and earth is named. All of the fatherhood that exists in the world has been named and granted by, by the Heavenly Father. And so is He watchful? Yes, the Lord never slumbers nor sleeps, right? Psalm 121 talks about. Does He stand firm? Yes. Like when He stretches His hand out, there's nobody that can turn it back and, and, and thwart His purposes and push Him back off of, uh, of what He is. Act like a man, like boldness, courage. Yes. Does He have it? Is He strong? Yes. Right? He is the all-powerful God who created the heavens and earth with like a word and so strong and then does he do everything he does in love yes in love he adopts in love he saves in fact the love that he shows in christ jesus is beyond your ability to comprehend right but you're hoping that the height and the breadth and the depth which is beyond all comprehension might be grasped a little bit when we join together with other believers in the church and we might know the love of christ that passes all understanding and so we're seeing this, this, the fatherhood and the manhood that we call each other to isn't like some John Wayne style of manhood that you can just pull some boots on and go live up to, right? Because like, none of us or very few of us fit that pattern or could live up to that pattern. But instead, we're called to the fatherhood of God himself, the manhood of Jesus himself, who came and took us and redeemed us and placed his Holy Spirit within us to restore to us the image of that original man, the the image that we were made in, the image and likeness of God. And so that's the calling. It's the calling of here's the gospel. And here's how the gospel makes us as men. And here's how the gospel makes us as leaders. And yes, there's qualities of this that is for all of us. But as we look at Father's Day, it's the call that we want to place on each other's lives. It's the expectation we want to place on each other's lives, not to work ourselves up to, but to conform back to the image that the gospel has stamped over our lives. And that's what we're here for. And I, and I imagine that many of you are much like me, and, and manhood isn't, hasn't been in our lives what it should be, right? And so we have fathers that, that weren't what they should have been. They weren't godly. They weren't biblical. They weren't this picture of masculinity. We've all seen people out in culture, maybe even been harmed or, or, or faced loss of, of people around us that, that, that their manhood just doesn't resemble what God's picture would be. But that isn't a call for us to then erase manhood because it's bad. It's a call for us to redeem manhood to the original intent, to the original design, to the manufacturer's settings of manhood. And that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does in our lives. That's the call I want to issue to you. Not a burdensome one that that cannot be lived up to, but a redeemed one that God is going to restore in your life. Because there are people around you that need that picture. There's people around you, whether you are a biological father or not, that need that picture. There's people around you who have never seen it. There's, There's a generation of men growing up that have never seen it. Well, they see it in us. That's what I want to call us to. And so manhood is a noble calling to make a lasting impact. 
Um, our, our leaders did a study, I don't know, it's been a couple of years, and, and it was talking about reproducing disciples, and they did like a biological life cycle to kind of give like visual indicators of, of, of like spiritual uh, growth. And so, you know, there's the child, somebody that's brand new in the faith, that's, or the, the, the baby that's brand new in the faith, and there's a set of qualities to a baby believer, and then they go into, you know, I think it was, I don't know, young adult or, um, you know, teenager and the qualities of a teenager and young adult, the qualities of a young adult. But when they got from young adult, you'd think, okay, adult. The last psych, the last part of spiritual maturity is not adult though. The last part of spiritual maturity that where we know that we have matured is parenting. And so it doesn't go from young adult to adult. It goes from young adult to parent. Why? Because spiritual maturity looks like reproduction. Spiritual maturity means that you're reproducing what's happened in you into the life of another person. And we cannot say we're mature in Christ if we've never reproduced ourselves into another person. We can say we've progressed. We can say we were maturing, but we cannot say we're mature in Jesus until we've made an impact in another person's life. Until we've uh, reproduced ourselves and our faith and, and the work that Jesus has done in our lives and the lives of other people. We become reproducing disciples. And so mature manhood looks like reproducing ourselves. And yes, oftentimes that's uh, biological, but it never, ever, ever in Scripture is limited to our biological family. We are called to be spiritual fathers. In, in first, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 4, Paul, who is single, in my view, never married. Some people's view, married and didn't work out. But whatever, it's, it's not important. We know he doesn't have any kids. And yet here's what, here's what he says in chapter 4. I admonish you as beloved children. Paul viewed his relationship with other believers that he had reached for the gospel of Christ, that he had discipled for the gospel of Christ. He viewed his relationship with them as that of a father to a son, a father to a child. And so he took the task of how am I going to make an impact on this world? I am going to leave behind dozens and hundreds and thousands of spiritual children who will then grow up and have spiritual children of their own. And that's the same Paul that's writing here as we get to chapter 16. And so manhood is a noble calling to make an impact, to reproduce yourself in the lives of other men, to reproduce yourselves in the life of your family, to reproduce yourself in the lives of the people around you. Let's look at how to do it. First, it's a call to courageous strength, verse 13. It's a call to courageous strength. Uh, Robert Lewis did a, is a guy that did something called men's fraternity, and he did four qualities of authentic manhood. And I'll share those with you because I think they're important. The first one is he rejects passivity. Do you know, like one of the first sins behind the sins in all the Bible was, was passivity. So Eve's out there in the garden. Snake slithers up to her. Snake tempts her. How does the snake get to her? Because man's checked out. Man's passive. If you read the text, it says when she ate the fruit, she gave it to her husband who was with her. His first failure was to allow his wife to be tempted without intervening, to allow access to his wife from the enemy without stepping in to stop it. And so real men reject passivity. We don't stand by and let the enemy have access to the people we care about and access to the people we love and access to the people we have responsibility for. Well, you know, I'm sorry. I just didn't, you know, I was busy. I was out doing something. The ball game was on. Right. And so they're checked out. 
They won't make a call. They won't take initiative. And that's what, that's what uh, this guy is like, reject that. Don't embrace that. Don't, don't check out. And so what areas of your life are you being passive? What areas of our lives are we allowing to be passive? The second one, accept responsibility. Because, you know, guys, like the buck stops here. The buck for your marriage stops here. The buck for your family life stops here. The responsibility is here. And so do you accept responsibility for where you are spiritually? Do you accept responsibility for where your family is spiritually? Do you accept responsibility for where your circles of influence within the church or in other men's lives are? Do you, do you embrace that and say, yes, the buck stops here? Do you actively embrace the responsibilities that God has given you? And so accept responsibility. The question is, where do you need to take active responsibility? Where do you need to take active responsibility? And one of the ways that starts, and I know it really gets deep and messes with us, there's times that we have to accept the blame for where things are. Right? Men should be very quick to give credit to other people, but we should also be very quick to take the blame for what's ours. If you notice that, like when you get in a fight with your wife, like, yeah, but you did this. But the kids, they were out of control. But the kids, they were talking back. And there's, like, they, there's no responsibility. There's no blame on yourself for where things are. Now, it's all on them because they didn't act right. It's all on them because you see what they did. It's all on them. No. I get the call. It's a call to accept responsibility and then it's a call to lead cor- courageously. There is an absence of bold, courageous, convictional leadership within our culture, within our churches, and within our families. We are too scared to hold clear, unwavering convictions about anything. Right? Everything's up for grabs. Everything should be hedged. Everything should waver. Everything should shift. And that is not manhood. There is a time to plant your feet in what is right. Plant your feet in what you know to be true. Plant your feet into what is clearly convictional. And and you should have some things in your life that are convictional. You should have some things in your life that are not up for grabs. And you should plant your feet in those. And you shouldn't let anything move you off of that. Lead courageously. Is there an area of of your life where where you lack courage? Is there an area of your life where you have... stepped back out of leadership because it was too hard or it was too costly or or the people didn't like it or your wife, your kids didn't like it. Is there an area where we've shirked back? Right. And then they look for the greater reward. Are you living for your hobbies and living for your toys and living for the weekend and living for time off and living to just consume for yourself? Are you living like there's a real eternity at stake? Are you living like there's something beyond this that matters? And that's his that's his steps. And by the way, as we talk about manhood, we're not demeaning womanhood. Right? We're not in a competition, guys, no matter what the commercials say. We're not in a fight with each other. Right. There's not a there's not a struggle going on, or at least there should not be a struggle going on between manhood and womanhood. They work best when they're partners. They work best when they love each other. They work best when they compliment and mirror each other or, or compliment each other. And so don't let people around you put a fight between you like that somehow manhood and womanhood are in opposition. No, they're meant to be the beautiful symphony in total harmony with each other, doing the dance of life and following Jesus together. 
So let's look at it. Text is made up of five commands, four in verse 13, and then the fifth is all-encompassing. The first one, be watchful. Be watchful. And so the, man, the command to be watchful is that you're alert, that you are awake, that you are, that you are focused and at attention. In the ancient world, there would be people whose jobs, they would, they would set them around the walls of the city, and it would be their job to stand on the wall and gaze at the horizon to see, is there an enemy, is there an enemy ahead? To see who is approaching the city, and, and does it look like there is any problem in their intentions? And so they would scan the, the horizon to look for dangers. They would scan the horizon to see what is approaching, and it was their job to alert the city, or it was their job to prepare for whatever was coming. And that's behind this command, like be watchful, be on alert. And so are you scanning the horizon for your own soul to say what dangers are out there that might be approaching? Are you scanning the horizon to say what enemies are out there or temptations are out there that may want me and that may be coming for me before they get too close so I can prepare? But a man's responsibility never stops with himself. Be watchful, be alert. And so are you scanning the horizon of of your family's life? Are you on the wall of your family scanning the horizon for enemies? Are you on the wall of, of your family's life scanning the horizon for the corrupting influences and the corrupting temptations that are going to bombard them? And are you scanning for that so that you can prepare for the danger that is ahead, so you can protect them from the danger ahead? Be watchful. Unlike a summer Sunday in church where we're a little sleepy, we can sometimes get lulled to sleep in life, right? We can sometimes kind of start going through the routine of work and going through the routine of hobbies and going through the routine of getting kids where they're supposed to be or going through the routines of, you know, in, of church and going through the routines of the things that are around us and we just fall asleep. And it's like we're sleepwalking through work and we're sleepwalking through hobbies. We're sleepwalking through our family. We're sleepwalking through our marriage. We're sleepwalking through our kids growing up. And we found that the world has put us to sleep. And you know what this text says? Wake up! See, look, there, that worked, didn't it? That's what it's saying. Be watchful. Be vigilant. There are enemies out there. There are corrupting influences out there. And they're in your kids' cartoons. And they're in your professor's mouths. And they're in your, your, your friends' lips. And they're in the news that you watch. And they're in the shows that you watch. And they're in the movies that you watch. And they're in the conversations that you have. And it's like, wake up. Do you not realize you're in a warfare? Do you not realize that the enemy is firing shots from every direction? Wake up. And as Christians, we've let ourselves fall asleep. And as men, we've let ourselves fall asleep. And I think there's one more wall you're meant to stand on. You're meant to stand on the wall of the men around you. And you're meant to scan the horizon for the dangers that are particular to their soul. And you're meant to scan the horizon for the corrupting influences that has captured them. And you need to fight to help them uh, get it back out of the city. Or the ones that are easy have easy access into their lives. And it's up to us as men to stand on each other's walls and alert each other that that danger is coming, to alert each other that the corrupting influence has made their way in, to hold each other accountable and help each other fight to this Jesus-restored manhood, this Jesus-restored holiness, this Jesus-restored relationships. Be watchful. Be watchful. It's a call to wake up. It's a call to get active in the care of your own soul and your family's life. 
and the souls of the men around you. The second command, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. When, when, the, or when the New Testament talks about the faith, it can be talking about our personal faith in Jesus that is then lived out. And, and that's important. But I think more often than not, what it's saying is the faith, meaning the revealed truth of our faith. So the revealed truth of our faith, the gospel, the revealed truth of our faith, the word of God. And so like stand firm in God's revelation, stand firm in the word, stand firm in the gospel, I think is what he's saying here. And so the call to manhood is a call to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Don't give up gospel ground. Now, does that include personal faith? Yes, because what we believe we live. And so does it include personal faith? It's lived out. Yes. Stand firm in the true uncompromising truth of what God has said in the gospel and then live out the truth that God has said with integrity. Stand firm in the faith. Don't give up good gospel ground through compromise because it doesn't fit and people don't like it or people don't agree with it or people hate it and people fight it. Don't give up the gospel, any part of what God has said, because it, it, it just isn't popular. But also don't give up good gospel ground in your life. Don't give up the ground that the gospel has taken to place integrity in, in the different parts of your life, integrity in your work life. Integrity in your family life, integrity in your financial life, integrity in your, in, in your uh, thought life, integrity uh, in, your, in, in the vows and covenants you've made with other people. Like, stand firm and don't give up gospel ground. Whether it be truth that we want to compromise and don't give up gospel ground if there's parts of your life that you want to compromise. Stand firm in the faith. And the word for stand firm means to stand in place and not give up ground. Hold the line. Right? It's funny, like each of these words, they're like what a general would come before his army that's about to go into battle, drastically outnumbered, and give that closing speech of all the great movies, right? Lord of the Rings, I know it's too old for y'all to remember, but you know, it's like shields are going to shatter and swords will be pierced and the day of man will end, but it's not today, right? And they're like, yeah, let's go die, let's do it. That's what's happening in this text. Like, guys, go. You're outnumbered, but God's on our side, it's okay. You're outnumbered, but there's a gospel. And so that's what he's saying, like, be watchful, guys, wake up, right? Stand firm, like, don't give up ground, don't retreat, don't fall back. There's no room to retreat, because when you retreat, you expose those you're meant to protect. Like, don't fall back. Like, be a man in this. Be courageous in this. Like, be strong. And, like, you could totally see a general, like, totally, like, standing in front of his troops, like, let's go do this. And I think that's the intention of the text, is like, okay, go, go. Act like men, See, the church and the world don't need men with bigger muscles. They don't need men with better gelled hairstyles. They really don't need men with... No, I'm not going. <laughs> they need men with convictional steel spines and tender, humble hearts. That's what the world needs. And you can do that whether you're, you're big and muscular or, or, or whether you're... You're not big and muscular or whether, you know, parts of your body have expanded that aren't supposed to. Like you can still be a man who is rock solid, steel spine, humble and tender. The call to manhood is for all of us. It is a steel spine and it is a tender heart. And that's what the church needs. That's what the world needs. And they need to do it who will not give up ground when it's hard and won't give up ground when it's unpopular. Won't give up ground when the people they love the most 
would desert in that moment. That's what they need. Watchful and active and strong enough to stand. And that will give courage and confidence to people around us. The next one, though, act like men. Only time it is in the New Testament this word is used. And you know how they made this word? They took the word for man and then turned it into a verb. So it's like man up. Man act. Right? Go do a man. Go be a man. Go play the man. And so that's all they did with the word. Like be a man. Act like a man. What does that mean? Well, I mean, we know as we go through Genesis 1, like man and, man and woman were created equal, right? Let us create them in our image. Male and female, he created them. And then in chapter 2, he begins to unpack that they're equal in chapter 1, but there's this distinction between them. They aren't the same. They're not meant to be replicas of each other. Thank God. They're not meant to be um, interchangeable as if one doesn't matter or, or, or the differences don't matter. They're, they're meant to be distinct. And the man is called to protect and the man is called to provide and the man is called to lead and yes there's a thousand different qualifications to that but that's like that's core calling of manhood is that we stand in front of danger not behind it when the people around us are are exposed to it. it it means that yes we have this inbred desire that is inescapable that there's this dignity to the calling of work and the calling of providing and the calling to take care of people around us and that there is this desire within us to lead. But what does it mean here? I think there's probably two shades of meaning from the from the book itself that inform act like a man. I think the first one is it's courage, not cowardice. It's courage versus cowardice. That men will have the courage of convictions. That men will have are, are called to have, not will have, that they are called to in the gospel to have this clarity of sight. Not that women don't, I'm just saying that men are called to it positively, we're all called to it, that there is this convictional way of living that men are to have, that they don't back off, and they're called to be courageous about it. They're called to stand up and say, this is what is true, this is what is right, this is what God says, not what I want it to say, but this is what God says, this is what will maximize the flourishing of the people around me, this is what is God's design best for the people around me, and here I stand. And if I stand alone then I still stand. And if I stand opposed, then I still stand. That's called courage. And you know what courage does? Courage is infectious, isn't it? Because your courage will give courage to the guy coming behind you. And your courage will give courage to the person standing beside you. And your courage will give courage to the the people in your family to stand on the same ground that you stand. It's courage versus cowardice. Oh, no, it's too hard. Oh, no, it's too uncomfortable. Oh, no, people don't like it. And you see us like we found all these great rationalizations and excuses to have no convictions whatsoever about anything. Because there's no one willing to be a man. In the best sense, the biblical sense of the word and say, no, this is what is good and right and true. This is what will cause everybody to flourish around me. And I believe it with all my heart because God said it and he said it clearly. And I'm holding it with humility and all those other things. Yes, but this is what's right. And there's going to be, it takes people to stand in courage to produce courage around us. And sometimes it takes people of courage to stand when no one around us will stand. Act like a man. Be courageous, not a coward. The second one, though, I believe it's also maturity versus immaturity. Throughout the book, Paul has been laying this groundwork to attack childishness. 
Guys, y'all need to start listening to this. Chris, you need to start listening to this. Chapter 3, verse 1. I couldn't address you as spiritual, but as infants. See what he's saying? Like, I should be able to come and talk to you as spiritual people who have progressed in the faith. I should come and be able to talk to you. People, uh, uh, we were in Hebrews this morning in Sunday school. I should be able to come and talk to you. And like, you should be able to chew your own food at this point. But I got to stick a bottle in your mouth as an adult because you never grew up. Right? Like, there's this immaturity. Like, you're, you're so, you're, I'm having to address you like you're a bunch of children again. Because you never grew up. The second time he says it, chapter 13, verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought as a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, it's easy to joke about, and I hope it doesn't get any of It's easy to joke about the guy that's like 30-something living in his mom's basement playing video games, right? But there's a thousand little childish things, like our toys got more expensive and our toys got bigger, but we're still playing with toys. We're still distracting major portions of our lives on games and toys and hobbies and, and, and sports and things that are, that are good, but they've just taken too big a portion of our lives. It's like, grow up. When I became a man, I put the childish things in their place. And it's funny, like, I mean, I think if we could turn our fishing poles and our hunting rifles and our cars and our sports into their childhood equivalents, it would be laughable how many little toy pop guns we're running around with and how many little like Wild West holsters with the little plastic cap guns. And you're like, what in the world are you doing? Put away childish things and we've not done it. And so when he says act like a man, what's he saying? Put away the childish stuff. And I don't know what that is for you. And again, I'm not saying that all this is bad. What I'm saying is does it have the right portion of your life? Do they have the right proportion to where you are? And so what Paul is saying when he says act like a man, he's saying put away the childish things of your life and grow up. Quit thinking like a child. Quit acting like a child. Quit reasoning like a child. And then in 1420, don't be children in your thinking. You see what he's saying? So he's leading up when he says act like a man. Quit acting like a child. Act like a man. Don't be a coward. Don't shrink back when it's hard. Stand as a mature person and so act like a man and a man and then the last command be strong it's the word for power the word for strength and i do not believe that he's talking about your inherent you're stronger because you're a man strength i believe he's talking about the strength of the lord like be strong in the lord and the power of his might and i think there's very few qualities of manhood that is more hated by our culture than strength. Like every man is a one step away from being a, an oppressor. Just watch, watch like the TV shows. Every man's one step away from being abusive. Every man's one step away from dominating and harming the people around him. And that's the, that's the picture they want to paint so that you won't be strong. And we should hate every bit of that kind of strength that is this false masculinity that does use our power to control and does use our power. Of, yes, we should throw that stuff out. But it doesn't mean we should throw strength out with it. It doesn't mean we should throw power out with it. It means that power should be restored and redeemed in the image of Christ the way God exercises his power for the good of those he loves and the good of those he cares about to cause their, their lives to flourish. That's the kind of strength. And so you should be strong. It says it. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the power of his might. Use every ounce of effort, every ounce of power, every ounce of strength that God has given you in your life. Like a laser beam focused to maximize the glory of God and to maximize the good of others around you. 
So when he says be strong, that's what I think he's saying. So don't let the culture around you turn you into a wimp because strength is something bad and to be feared. Let God turn you into someone that is strong in him for his glory. Strong in him for the good of others. That's the right use of strength. There is a kind of strength that should be rejected, but not that kind. There is a kind of strength that should be totally erased from the world, but it's not that kind. Be strong. There's a manhood crisis in America, and the solution is not to erase manhood. It's not to erase genders. It's to erase, or it is to redeem manhood and to restore it to its original image and its original intent. It's a call to courageous strength. The second, it's a call to genuine love. It's a call to genuine love. Men are defined by what they love. And I think all people are defined by what they love, by the way. Men are defined by what they love. Golf, fishing, hunting, we're defined. Work will be defined. Family will be defined. Sports. You can tell what dudes love, can't you? It's on a bumper sticker, probably. We're just that dense. It's certainly on the emblems of our clothing. It doesn't take long to come out of our mouths. And our money, somehow, we can be flat broke, but there's always enough money to see the game. There's always enough money for one more whatever the hobby is, isn't there? Because we're defined by our loves. We always have time for what we love. We always talk about what we love. But anybody that spends time with me or us say, that man, that woman loves Jesus Christ. Because he's what comes out of their mouth. He's what gets their time and attention. He is what just oozes out of their pores. He is the emblem that they wear. They love Jesus because they're defined by their love for Jesus Men will be defined by our loves. Women will be defined by our loves. Does Jesus define us? Let's look at it. A few quick um, statements of that. First, there's a passionate love. Or, I'm sorry, the, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. All right, so here's the umbrella. Guys, be strong and courageous. Like, don't be a wimp. But you better do it with such amazing, overwhelming love that it displays the love of a father, of the father for us who sent his son. Right? So he qualifies that. Be strong. The way the cross looks strong doesn't look real strong to some people, but there is this power attached to it that is beyond the imagination. Right. And so be watchful. The way the father doesn't slumber or sleep, but watches over his children even as they sleep. Right. Be a man. Let all that you do be done in love. Make sure your manhood is defined by love or is qualified by love. Make sure your manhood is an application of love for people around you. All right, and so it starts with a passionate love for God in the church. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so there's this people that come down, they're like, we're going to trip Jesus up. I'm like, okay, Jesus, tell us what it's all about. Okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what it's all about. And as guys, think how many things clamor for your attention and raise your hand. Think of me. Spend time on me. Focus on me. How many things clamor in your life for that? And so sometimes we're a little dense. We're guys, right? And so we need to walk up to Jesus and say, Jesus, could you 
clarify this and could you simplify this? What really matters? Because if it's too many things, I'm not going to get it. And so Jesus clarifies for us and Jesus simplifies for us. And here's how he does it. Chris, men, everybody, love the Lord your God with every fiber of your being. With your thought life, with your emotional life, with your strength, with your soul, heart, mind, strength, soul, everything. Okay, I can get that. I'm not sure I can do it, but like, okay, I understand. It's simple. Are we known by our love for God? Are we known by our love for God? Are we known for pursuing a bunch of other things that don't really matter? Are we known by our family? My husband loves God. My husband loves Jesus Christ. Are we known by our kids? Dad loves Jesus. Are we known by the people we're in our campus ministries with? That guy loves Jesus. Are we known by the people around us? They love God. And I think it's too much. Then you might be getting close. I might be getting close. Right? Love, a passionate love for God. A devoted love for your wife. And that includes if you hadn't met her yet. A devoted love for your wife, right? In a culture that says marriage is disposable. In a culture that says, let's just have a starter marriage. We'll try this thing out for a few years and then trade it in for a new model once our careers are good and going. Right? In a culture that has left a wake of divorce, a wake of, uh, of the damage and, and scars in people's lives, a, a, a wake of, of, of children having to grow up without, without dad in the home, a wake of the, the consequences of us not... Will we be those who love our wives? And that is not to heap condemnation on us who have failed. It's to say, let's call back now. Let's be restored back now. Let's let Jesus redeem it now. Let's see what, what the years that the locusts have eaten away. Let's just see what God might put in place now. And so, there's simple takeaways. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So it is a joyfully sacrificial love, right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's how, you gotta, that's how we're called to love our wives, not begrudgingly. Like, love your wife the way Jesus loves his bride. And joyfully gave everything he had for her. Joyfully died for her. Joyfully, we are called to die every single day. To love for the best. To sacrifice for the best of our spouses or our future spouses. And then sanctifying Washing with the water of the word. And so is my love sacrificial? Am I willing to die to myself? And is my love sanctifying? Does my love help my wife love Jesus more? And I say this because the Bible says it, not because I'm super successful at it. I say it for me to a call back to this, just as I say it to you as a call back to this. And then a shepherding love for the next generation. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Your goal is not to exasperate your kids to assert your authority over them. Your goal is to nurture a love for Jesus Christ in them and to discipline them towards a greater love for Jesus Christ. And then the last one, a merciful love for neighbors. A merciful love for neighbors. So our love for God will definitely lead us to love our families well. But hear this, it will never, ever, ever, ever will the love of God stop in the confines of your home. Never will the love of God stop with your biology. Never will the love of God stop at the address you call home. 
or the little piece of dirt that surrounds the place you call home. That will never, ever be the extent of God's love coming from you out from you. And so do you have a merciful love for others, those in need, those who are missing something, those who are isolated? Is there room in your life, room in your family, room in your world for them? And I believe one of the great areas that we have believed a lie is in the area of male friendships and male investment. Like there's barriers that we face and women don't face to having close friends as adults. College students get it, right? It's great. They have these great communities. And then somehow when we get adults and everybody moves to different places, it's like so hard to find guy friends that go anywhere past sports and work. And I believe that is the work of Satan because you were not wired to live in isolation. God did not create you just because you're a man to live isolated from other men. Now, there's some internal reasons and some cultural reasons why we let ourselves live in distance and live in isolation, but it is not God's design. And so do you love some guys around you? Do you let yourself be known by some guys around you? Do you love some guys coming behind you in the faith in a way that makes an impact in their life? Because I believe that is one of the calls of God in every single man's life, is that you're surrounded by other men. You're surrounded by other men who you're fighting with, fighting beside, watching over, and they're watching over you like you're in a foxhole. Because you are. And every single one of us has seen people we care about marriage fall apart. We've seen someone we, we care about and their, their moral life fall apart, their business life fall apart. Or maybe just circumstances have, have, have turned them upside down. We've all witnessed that. And we know we should have said something. You know you should have said something. I know I should have said something. But we're guys. We don't do that. So you'll let a man destroy his soul and destroy his family because guys don't do that. And I'm not saying that. I'm saying that to me because I've, like, how many times have I been quiet when I shouldn't have? How many times did I not step towards relationship because, you know, guys don't do that. And I have seen firsthand. I had to make a call to a guy who was in his wedding. He was married 14 years. I had to make a call like, dude, what are you doing? When it was too late. Not when it was on time. And just the grief of that. I hope you've experienced enough to know that guys don't do that is not a good enough reason to stay in isolation. And guys don't do that is not a good enough reason to stay apart and not say something. And so it's that kind of love. It's a merciful love for neighbors. Let's do a couple practical things as we wrap up. First, be strong. Maybe you believe the lie that you need to tone down your strength, tone down your convictions. I want to, I want to just encourage you, don't. I want to encourage you to be strong in the Lord. Be strong in your families. Be strong in the church. Be strong in your community. Be strong in your workplace. But be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. The second, be watchful. It's so easy with the bombarding of busyness and hectic schedule and work to get distracted. And there's no shortage of things to fill your eyes, your mind, and your attention. And all the while that you're distracted, you're leaving gaping holes for your own soul, for temptations and influences to come in. And all the while that we're distracted, and all the while we're so busy, we're leaving gaping holes that allow our wives, that allow our kids, that allow our friends to be accessed 
by an enemy because we weren't in our post watching. And I want to encourage you, be watchful. Be vigilant. Be alert. Third one, be courageous and mature. I think we've talked about it enough. I'll just say it this way. Have a stiff spine and a tender heart. Have a stiff spine and a tender heart because you're so connected to Jesus, the one who is looking in the face of people and be like, you are a whitewashed tomb. And he's that Jesus. The one that goes and turns over temple tables. He's that Jesus. And he's also the one that stoops down and stops the world for a woman with an issue of blood. Because he knows that her issue of blood stopping is not full restoration. Her knowing that she's a daughter of the king, that's full restoration. And being that kind of men that steely spines and tender hearts. And then the last one, rightly order your loves, like we just talked about. You need to be known for your love for God. And that will put everything else in its right spot. What the culture is missing is not men. It's biblical men. What our culture needs is, is a renewal of biblical men. Not the kind that beat their chest with pride, but the kind that put Jesus on display with their lives. Jesus on display with their loves, who give their lives to lead the people around them to flourish. That's what we're called to. That'll make an impact. That's the thousand little hammer blows your life can give to leave something that matters behind. And that's what you want. That's the yearning of your soul because God put it there to make a difference. And your career won't make a difference, not that way. The strikes that your life puts on the lives of the people around you, that's what will make a difference. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name, let my life count. In Jesus' name, let our lives count. In Jesus' name, we pray that the men of this church that they would yearn for their life to count and that they would let the, the, the blows of their life strike against the men and the families around them to make them what you desire them to be. God, would you wake us up? God, would you call us back to more? God, would you not lay us with the guilt of what we're not doing, but would you infuse us with the restoring, redeeming grace that forms Jesus in us? And that, that Jesus in us and Jesus through us can make this kind of difference in the world. God, would you pray? Would, would you do that in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.